0: Good evening, it's good to be back with you again tonight. And if you will, open your Bibles with me to the Old Testament book of Habakkuk, and we'll continue our study here in Habakkuk tonight. As we discussed this morning, it's the title of our series that we're looking at here is about finding calm in the chaos. That our lives, oftentimes, we find ourselves in the midst of chaos. Some of that chaos is... Uh, self-inflicted. Sometimes we do bad, terrible, horrible things and we have to face the consequences of that chaos. Other times our chaos is beyond our control. We could be the victim or the consequence of somebody else's sins. You could be driving down the road and get hit by a drunk driver and you now have the consequences of somebody else's sins. We could be living under the consequences of the sin of a nation and while the nation has left God and the nation's going through judgment, we ourselves may be doing righteousness, but yet we find ourselves in the midst of someone else's chaos. So regardless of what we do, sometimes chaos finds us, and it finds us more often than not. But the picture that we're trying to paint tonight as we understand from the prophet Habakkuk is that there is calm within chaos, One of my favorite quotes from Homer Haley and his book in Prayer and Providence is that God doesn't save us from the storms, rather God saves us through the storms. It's these difficulties and these trials of life that God uses to refine us, to save us, to harden us, to strengthen us, that we might be better, that we might be more profitable, that we might better and truly understand who God is. So tonight what we want to focus on is the next few set of verses and understand that God's ways are mysterious. Is there anybody here that as you think about the way, even whether it be the overarching scheme of redemption, or you think about God's plans, is there any of us that can say truly all of it always makes sense? I don't think so. I mean, I've been a Bible student for a long time, and there's many things that I just don't get. We I mean, don't understand how God was able to do this and do that to make all of these things come together. I mean, think about just the, the, the entirety of Scripture. You know, the, the, in, the influence that the Holy Spirit has, that inspiration of Scripture, that you've got all of these different writers writing at all of these different times that all write the exact same message without contradiction. All of the prophecies that are perfectly fulfilled, exactly as they said they would be, arching over this time. It's, it's really astounding when we sit down and think about it. The math on it's atrocious. If we get to the level of acuteness that it takes mathematically for every one of those prophecies to be perfectly fulfilled from the Old Testament to the New, the chances of that happening are astounding. I mean, you could win the lottery multiple times before all that stuff happens. So God's ways are mysterious. God's ways are astounding. And God's ways are higher than our ways. And I think conceptually, we can understand that. And conceptually, we can sit here tonight and say that, that I know, Mike, I, I, we know that God's ways are higher than man's ways. But I want us to think about this, and I want us to study this on a level to where it really sinks home to our hearts, to where we can be okay with not knowing. That I I want us to understand and believe and trust so much in God's ways that it's okay that I don't know how it's all gonna work out. That that's okay. And most of us don't work like that, do we? I am number one type A personality, right? I'm a fixer. I like to do things. I like to understand them. I want to know how the sausage is made, right? I, I don't just trust that, hey, it's sausage. Like, I want to know what did you do to get from pig in the backyard to sausage? Like, How did this happen? And what am I actually doing here? I, I, I like to know that because if I know that and I can understand it, then I'm better about how I make decisions. But there are some things in life, friends, that we're just not privy to. Those are higher level decisions than you and me. And we've got to be okay with that. We've got to be okay because we trust the one that's making that decision. And Habakkuk, remember, if you remember from this morning's lesson, or for those of you that weren't here, this morning Habakkuk makes his plea to God. As I I told you, I kind of—I—I read this, and, and I don't know, maybe I'm wrong about this, but I read this as Habakkuk fussing at God about the state of the people. In those first four verses, God, how long are you going to let this happen? I can't believe that you let this violence and this iniquity and this sin, I can't believe this is going on, God. What are you going to do about it? Then God answers in verse 5, and he says, I'm doing something in your days that you wouldn't believe. And let's read 5 through 11 together. Look among the nations and see wonder and be astounded, for I'm doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, I'm raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings that are not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar and they fly like an eagle swift to devour. They all come for violence, all of their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress for they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on, guilty men whose might is their God. Now Habakkuk says, God, how long are you going to let this happen? And God says, not very much longer. Y'all are going to be punished, and I'm going to bring the best people at punishing to ever do it. Now Habakkuk, as he hollers out, this is not the response Habakkuk was looking for. This is 100% not what Habakkuk thought was getting ready to happen. And oftentimes, isn't that what happens in our own prayer life? Are, Are you as guilty as I am of doing this? When you pray about a situation in your life and difficulties and trials that are happening, don't you already have answers as to what God should be doing? I do that all the time, right? God, here's the situation. And if you just do X, Y, and Z, knock this out by the end of the week, I'm back in. And we do that and we've got a picture in our mind of God, these are the simple things that you can do to make this work out. And then old Mikey's fine, right? And Habakkuk, I'm sure when he called out to God and he said, God, your people are violent. They're doing these awful iniquities. Habakkuk is actually asking God, God, what we need is just a better king. I mean, this Jehoiakim's a, a, you know, bonehead and he don't know what he's doing and that's why. You know, if you could just send us another David. If you just get us a David here, we'll install him as king. We'll have a reformation and we'll restore ourselves and we'll be faithful. And that's what we need. And God, if you don't have a David laying around, maybe you got one of them good judges. You know, the first one's not when we got to the last few that were kind of barely even really judges. I'm talking about one of those good ones in the beginning. Just some strong leader. God, if you'll just send us one of those we'll turn around and everything will be fine and it'll be great we'll have this knocked out by the end of the month but that's not what god had in mind was it you know what god had in mind is what we talked about a little bit this morning god said what i'm going to do for you all is what i told you i was going to do in the latter half of deuteronomy my patience is out i've been patient and i begged and i have pleaded for generation and generation And y'all have still acted a fool and you've played the harlot. And right now in my temple, you've got idols set up that you're sacrificing to. And you're playing the harlot in my face right now. So you know what, boys? I'm done. And it's time that you got the punishment that I promised y'all those years ago. Many of you, as you look out here, have kids. And as a parent... I don't think any of us like to punish our kids, do we? Anybody just really enjoy that? I don't I hate it. You know, and we say things and I think about, you know, me as a child, you know, when my parents would say things like, well, this will hurt me worse than it's hurting you. No, it don't. I got the whooping, right? I got the stripes. This didn't hurt you. I mean, maybe it wore out your arm beating me, but it didn't hurt you the way it just hurt me. And we think about that and we don't like that. But we have to, don't we? When you warn your children and you tell them, look, you can only go this far, and then there's consequences. And what we hope as parents is that we, the words and the threat of violence causes them to stay within the boundaries. But what happens? There's, kids push those boundaries, right? And they want to find out if you're serious or not. And there comes a time when we all have to discipline our children and we don't like it and we hope maybe we'll just have to do it a few times and they'll get it but there's a reason why your hand hurts when you touch the hot stove because you're not supposed to do it right but if i put my hand on the stove and it didn't hurt what am i going to do i'm going to keep putting my hand on the stove right so that discipline that we hope to instill the punishment we hope is something that corrects that brings them back to where they ought to be but what happens to a child that never sees consequences we know those kids don't we that have never seen consequences in their life their lives are a wreck because nothing ever really happens Right? We've seen the parents you know, in the school systems and, and in our communities that their kids have never really done anything wrong. It's the teacher's fault. It's the school's fault. It's other parents' fault. It's society's fault. It's whatever. But it's never really little Johnny's fault. Little Johnny's a perfect angel, but he's not. He's a heathen. <laughs> and what he really needed was a spanking like 15 years ago. But that's what happens, right, when there's no consequences for sin. And God is patient wishing all men everywhere to repent. But there will come a time, friends, when it's time for justice. Just like we talked about this morning. We don't want justice. We want mercy. We want grace. We want compassion. But there comes a time when it's time for justice. And when it's time for justice, and that's exactly what God's explaining to Habakkuk here, is that Habakkuk, it's time for justice. And this justice is going to sound terrible. Because I'm going to bring through the people that are the worst, that are actually the best at justice. Do you know the story of the destruction of Jerusalem? Do you remember that from your Old Testament history? It's awful. It's awful when you read about what happened. I'm going to give you a little, just a little picture of it. Over in uh, Psalm, Psalm 137, verses 1 through 9. Now, Psalm 137 is written by the exiles here that are in Babylon by the river Kabar. They are slaves that are being forced and oppressed under Babylonian rule here. And the psalmist writes By the waters of Babylon, there we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows there we hung up our lyres, for there our captors required of us songs, and our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. Let my tongue stick to the roof of its mouth, if I do not remember you. If I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy. Remember, O Lord, against the Edomites the day of Jerusalem, how they said, lay it bare. Lay it bare down to its foundations. O daughter of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed. Blessed shall be he who repays you. With what you have done to us, blessed shall be he who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock. Remember what we just read about how swift their horses were? About how fierce the people were? Friends, when they rode in to Jerusalem on those swift and fierce and mighty horses, they picked up the children by their arms and by their legs and smashed their heads against rocks and trees, killing them. That's what happened and the destruction of Jerusalem. They came through and they laid it bare to its foundations. And it was awful. And it was terrible. And as they came through and destroyed it, they kept captives. But they only kept the ones that were worth any value to them. Some went to Babylon as slaves. But they took the best of the nation of Israel. And if you remember from Daniel chapter 1, the key figures that we concentrate on, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, remember there were other Hebrew children that were all in that class, that were taken off, that were given the king's finest and taught the king's ways and indoctrinated into Babylon that ended up rising up to leadership in Babylon. But all of them were captives. They were no longer their own. And friends, when we think about how difficult it is, when we think about the awful nature of what had happened, and the prophet Habakkuk just cries out to God, you know, how how in the world could you let these things happen? Not these people, God. Surely not. You're not going to use these folks here that are going to come in and destroy us and do that. Starting in verse 12, Back to Habakkuk chapter 1, starting in verse 12. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die, O Lord, as you have ordained as a judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. You are you who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why would you idly look at traitors and remain silent as the wicked swallows up the man that's more righteous than he? You, like mankind, you make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings them all up out with the hook and drags them out with his net, and gathers them into his dragnet and rejoices and is glad. Therefore he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet, for by them he lives in luxury and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and merciless merciless ah, mercilessly killing nations forever? God, you can't use these awful people. You're God. You're righteous. I mean, and we're bad, but we're not that bad. Right? God, we, yeah, we've made some mistakes, and we've played the hard, way. we've done these things, but they're worse than us, so how could somebody worse than us destroy us? And God, how could you have any part with that? How could you have anything to do with these awful people? And I want you to think about it from Habakkuk's perspective. How in the world could God use awful people to accomplish his will? Doesn't that sound ridiculous? Friends, this is one of God's mysterious, miraculous ways. Because I want you to turn that thing on its head. This is how good the God is that we serve. This is how powerful the creator of the heavens and earth is. God doesn't need complicity to do his will. You should think about that. How about God can take Pharaoh and Nebuchadnezzar and the king of the Medo-Persians, he can take people that are against him and turn them into his will. How about that? How about the fact that God can use people who don't want to give him the credit and the glory, and he can use them for his good and then turn around and punish them. That's the God we serve. We don't serve a God that is waiting on you and me to accomplish his will. God's will is going to be done, regardless of you and me. We can either get on the boat or we can get run over by the boat. It don't matter to Him. God wants all of us on His side. But friends, let's not make the mistake to think we can get in God's way. Don't ever make that mistake. And think somehow we're going to thwart the power and the will and the design of a sovereign God. Because let's not forget, everything here is His. Everything is His. From the air to the water... To the resources it's all his and he will choose to pluck up what needs to be plucked up and he'll choose to sow what needs to be sown but our God is always in control and he doesn't need our complicity to do that he'll take somebody and use their own force and their own rebellious nature and he can turn that force and direct it in the way that it ought to go did Pharaoh want to let the children out of Egypt nope What'd God do? There's that text there, right, that that, that gets people all tore up about God hardening Pharaoh's heart, right? God hardened Pharaoh's heart. But if you're a careful Bible student, as many times it says Pharaoh hardened his own heart. God hardened his heart, Pharaoh hardened his own heart. It's an equal number of times. But friends, what I want us to remember here is that did God take away Pharaoh's free will? No, Pharaoh did whatever he wanted to do. He didn't take away his free will. God doesn't take away anybody's free will. But I want you to remember the same hot sun that will melt a stick of butter will harden a piece of clay, won't it? Did the sun change or did the material change? God is God. But God also knows our very nature and knows that if you got somebody that's overly aggressive, he knows how to provoke them. And that same person that gets provoked by the goodness of God and the power of God, because remember what happened to Pharaoh, right? That he had his magicians that did things, but God came and remember Moses laid down the stick and it ate his magician's tricks, right? God showed that he was more powerful than anything Pharaoh had ever seen. Now, did Pharaoh humble himself before God? No, he got mad and decided to fight God, didn't he? And even when the plagues came through, Pharaoh doubled down, made it harder on the Israelites. Pharaoh said, no, I'm going to fight this. A wise man seeing the things going on would have said, ho, 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 I'm outmatched here. But Pharaoh didn't. He relented after the death of the firstborn, then got mad again, right? And sent his armies out after the children. And what happened to those armies? They're at the bottom of the Red Sea. Right? Because God's ways are more powerful than man's ways. And God is doing mysterious things you and I may not understand, especially in the moment. Because God's doing things that are on a higher level and a higher plane than we are. And I want us to think about the fact that in all of this, in this calamity, and we talked about it this morning, that that we have the fortune of looking back on the Old Testament And looking back on the history and looking back through the New Testament, and we can see all the dominoes falling, right? We can see how they moved from the Garden of Eden to the Garden of Gethsemane to the feet of Mount Zion, right? We can see all of that because we've got the fortune of being able to view it all through the lens of history. We're looking back and we can see those things falling into place. But in the moment, it's hard to see that. It's hard to look for Jesus when fierce riders are coming through the middle of town killing your children. It's hard to think about redemption. It's hard to think about the temporary nature that God is only going to keep us in captivity for 70 years when everybody around you is being killed. But friends, what we need to remember is not all we know of God is all there is to know of God. I'm going to say that again. Not all we know of God is all there is to know of God. That we think we know and we think we understand, but friends, we're playing checkers and he's playing chess. God is moving these pieces around, and I want you to think about this. We're just going to take a quick detour here through what God's doing, okay? So the children of Israel, the nation of Israel is being punished and they're going into captivity, right? So, so we, we, we know that's what's going on here in Habakkuk. And the parents of Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are getting ready to lose their children, right? They're getting taken off to Babylon. They're left behind. But these kids, they're probably late teens, early 20s. These kids, in Daniel chapter 1, purpose in their own hearts. That they're going to follow God. That they're going to be committed. That regardless of all this stuff that just happened, they've heard the words of Habakkuk, right? Regardless of what just happened, they are still faithful to God. And what happens in the book of Daniel? These young men take on positions of leadership and they influence King Nebuchadnezzar. And there's Daniel in the lion's den. And there's Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego going through the fiery furnace. And friends, without Daniel and without Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, there is no Mordecai and there is no Queen Esther, right? Without that influence, without that influence, Nebuchadnezzar doesn't change his life at the end. And I'm very convinced that Nebuchadnezzar, after all he went through, finally at the end of his life realized that God is God and God is in control and all these idols are nonsense. I believe that. And without Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego, and without Mordecai and without Esther, there is no Ezra and Nehemiah, is there? They don't come back and rebuild that wall. Now you, if you're sitting there and you're Daniel's parents, or you're Shadrach's parents, or you're Meshach's parents, or your Abednego's parents, and you think about how hard it is that your child has been drug off, you don't know what the future holds. And you don't know because of their faith, they're going to influence kingdoms for generations. Because what happens to us, we look through our own biased perspective, right? We think about the loss to us. We think about the pain that we go through. We think about the devastation around us. But it's hard for us to take a step back and to see the bigger picture, to see the whole room, to see that for generations, good is going to come out of this bad. And as awful as it is what we're going through at the moment, so that's our quote from this morning, we can never, ever lose faith that in the end we will prevail with the brutal facts that we're in front of. Were they going through terrible things? Yes. Was it hard? Yes. Was it absolutely devastating? Yes. But in the end, we see God prevailing. We see God's wisdom prevailing. We see God's plan prevailing. That God is known in heathen kingdoms. That God's name is praised in Babylon and in the Medo Persian Empire. That God's people end up back when the fullness of time for Jesus to come. Friends, we need to understand that there is more at stake and there's more at play than you and I even have the ability to comprehend. There's more things going on. I'm mindful of the apostles when they sat in that boat with Jesus. Remember that? The winds and the waves started thrashing around. Jesus is asleep at the boat. And what do they do? They go into panic mode, right? Master, carest thou not that we perish? We're going to all die here on the boat in the middle of the sea. What does Jesus do? He stands up and he rebukes the wind. What's he say to them? Ye of little faith. You think some winds are going to stop me? You think even nature can stop what we're doing here? Yes, I care that you perish, but you have a lack of faith in what I'm doing. Because, friends, sometimes the immediate circumstances that we're going through, those brutal facts, that brutal reality, moves our eyes to the immediate instead of to the horizon where it belongs. And we've got to understand God's in control, and God may be doing things that I'm not able to understand. And where we have to take ourselves Mentally, spiritually, in our heart, is exactly where Habakkuk comes to in chapter 2 and verse 1. I'm going to take my stand and my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. Let me put that in layman's terms. I said too much. And it's time for God to speak. And maybe I was a little too hasty. And sometimes we think we're deserved an explanation, don't we? God, you got to tell us what's going on here. You got to make all this make sense because you somehow owe us an explanation. I'm going to poke holes in that for you because if anybody ever deserved an explanation in all of scripture, who do you think that should be? If one man, one character in all of scripture deserved an explanation, who do you think that would be? Job, you think he deserved an explanation? When's the last time y'all studied Job? Don't you think about my friend Job here for a minute. What happens to Job? Job is righteous, right? Job is righteous. And here God and Satan get into this conversation. And Satan says to God, the only reason he's righteous is because good has come to him and he's got blessings. And God says, no, Job's righteous because Job's righteous and he trusts me. And God allows Satan to start tormenting him, doesn't he? And Satan torments Job and his friends who he thought were his friends turned out to be bums and give him terrible advice. His wife turns on him and says, Job, curse God and die. Job is alone. He loses everything. And what happens at the end of Job? When Job asks why. Remember how that book ends? when God speaks to him from the whirlwind and says, where were you when I set the foundations of the earth? Tell me, O oh Job, what is the width and what are the cubits and what is the breadth of the deep? When you can start to tell me how any of this stuff works, then you've got a right to know. And how's Job in that response? I overstepped my bounds, God. You are God and I am not. Right? Friends, if Job doesn't get an answer, you and I sure don't get an answer. Right? If anybody deserved an answer as to why things happen, Job deserved that answer. And friends, he did not. And we do not. The best thing that we can do in the peace of calamity and the hardest thing, the absolute hardest thing you and I can do sometimes. Is to be still and know that God is God. Listen, academically from this pulpit, I can tell you that all night long. It sounds real easy right here. It's brutal in the moment. It's brutal in the moment. I told you, I'm a type A fixer personality. I got to know, I got to fix it, I got to do stuff. And the worst thing in the world for me is to sit and to wait and to watch somebody else do it. But friends, when it comes to things beyond us, our faith has to kick in to understand that God is in control, especially when I don't understand. Especially when I don't know. And especially when it hurts. That what I need to do is to take it to God and I need to sit down, get out of the way, and let God do what God does. And understand that if I had my faith lamp turned up where it should be, then I could see Him moving. That's exactly what Paul talks about to those in the Areopagus. Remember Acts chapter 17 when when Paul's preaching on the unknown God? What He says to him is that creation cries out, and it cries out that if we would grope for Him, if we would blindly reach out, we would find Him because He's not far from us. God's always there whether we see Him or not. And if we blindly grope in the dark, we bump into Him. But if we'll turn our faith lamps up, close our mouth, quiet our heart, quiet our spirit, and take a step back, we could see God moving and acting. And we can see that there are greater things than what we know. Friends, the 600-level class here, the masters or the doctorate-level class, is to know that sometimes it's beyond us. And it's not for me to know how it ends. I know how it ends. It's not for me to know how we're going to get to the end, right? I don't need to know that. I don't deserve to know that. Because he's God. And I'm just me. And at the end of the day, even if he told me, I probably wouldn't understand it. Right? I've got a friend of mine, one of my best friends in the world. His name's Jeremiah Ross. And Jeremiah may be the smartest person I've ever been around in my life. And i tell you the first time I knew that. We were playing a game in our apartment. And it was one of those games where... You get the word, and you've got to describe the word without using any of the things on the card. Y'all ever played that game? You know what I'm talking about. you, You buzz them in if they use one of the words on the card. And the word that we had was white noise. And so, you know, and you couldn't say things like static on the TV and all that stuff. And so Jeremiah begins to explain to us on a, you know, molecular level what white noise is. And I remember just sitting and staring at him like, what did he just say? But that was a level of, of intelligence he was. And I've been in conversations with him and with other people that are way smarter than I am as they explained intricate details of how physics or chemistry or some of those things work. I'm just a numbers math guy. That's all I am. I'm very simple. And when they start getting into these deep levels, I, I look at them like, boys, I just, I'm gonna have to trust you on that because I can't dispute anything that you're saying. And I think about that with God. And even if God laid out and explained to Job or explained to Habakkuk as he does here or explains to us that these things have to happen in order for these things to happen, you and I probably wouldn't get it anyway. So what's better? That we demand answers or that we be still and know that he's God? That God's got his end of the stick that he whittles on and I've got my small role that I'm playing here. That there are things that I'm supposed to do to be a Christian, to be a servant, to be a child. And there's things that God does because he's sovereign and he's in control. Friends, we've got to understand our place in this world. And we've got to understand that God's ways are greater than our ways and God's ways are mysterious. And God's ways to us may never make sense. But I promise you in the end, they all work out to our good because that's what God's been trying to do since Genesis. If you ever thought about and wondered about what God wants, you ever asked yourself that question, I wonder what God wants. You know what God wants? God wants the Garden of Eden. That's what God wants, because that's what he first created. God wants to walk with us and talk with us and dwell with us in perfect unity and relationship. That's what God wants. But sin created separation between us and God. And since Genesis chapter 3 God has been putting everything in place for you and I to walk with Him and talk with Him again in heaven. That's what God wants. And so all the steps between Genesis chapter 3 and Revelation 22 are to reconcile me and you to God. That's what God wants. Now the how and why it makes sense that in order to overcome sin we needed to sacrifice His Son, boys, I'm never going to understand that. I'm never going to understand that the way to redemption was through the death of God's Son. That's never going to make sense to me. But that's how it had to happen. And what had to happen is, for us to understand the cost of sin, we had to understand what God was willing to pay for it, right? Because what's, what's anything worth? what somebody else is willing to pay for it, right? No matter what we're talking about, the only value that anything has, a piece of property, a car, an oil well, anything, the only value it has is what somebody else is willing to pay for it. You know what God said? That you're in my worthless souls, that it's worth the death of his son. God said that's what you and I are worth. And that's the cost that he was freely, freely willing to pay for you and me. He said you and I are worth that and I'm astounded and I'm astounded that he thinks you and I are worth that and I'm astounded that he was willing to freely pay that cost and I am astounded that God is at work trying to bring me back to his side when I'm the one that left because what I deserve is separation what I deserve is death the wages of sin is death but the free gift of God is eternal life and that eternal life is what he wants for, for you and me. And that home in heaven to walk with him and to talk with him and to be in his presence. Heaven's not great because there's literal streets of gold and all that other stuff that people carefully write about. Heaven's great because God's there. And I don't need a mansion in heaven. That's, that's great. We sing that song, you know, give me a gold one that's silver lined. I cringe at that song. You know why? Because I'll live under a bridge in heaven if God's there. Okay? I'll be homeless in heaven as long as I'm with him. Because if I can get in, I I don't need a deluxe apartment in the sky. Give me a shack down by the river if I'm in his presence. Because that's what makes heaven outstanding. And what makes it even more outstanding and what humbles me every day and what breaks my heart is the fact that God wants all of us there. That he's not slow, as some men count slackness, but he's patient wishing everyone to repent. Everyone, everyone. Whichever political figure that you can't stand. If you don't like Trump, he wants Trump to be saved. If you don't like Biden, he wants Biden to be saved. He even wants McConnell to be saved, right? God wants all of them. As crooked and evil and awful as all of them are, God doesn't want anybody to walk out. God wants Hitler and Stalin to be saved. There's nobody that's done anything so terrible that God still doesn't want them to have an opportunity to be redeemed. He wants all of us, all of us, not just the good ones. But he's patient and he's slow and his ways are mysterious because he's giving us time. And friends, I'll I'll freely admit that, that, that I was one of the hellfire and brimstone preaching sermons, right? I did that early on young, rambunctious, lack of understanding Mike, would stand here in this pulpit and beat on it and talk about hellfire and brimstone and the judgment day and talk about how God's going to cast everybody out. But friends, the more and more I get in my Bible and the more and more I study both my Old Testament and my New Testament, do you know what judgment day is really going to look like? It's going to be God with tears in his eyes saying, oh Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I would have gathered you in. I don't want any of you to perish but you're going to have to, because you did not allow me to save you. That it's not God happily casting people in the lake of the fire, which is the second death. It's God with tears in His eyes, saying, "How I would have gathered you in." That it's a broken-hearted Father that has to issue justice when He wanted grace and mercy. That's what God wants. That's why God's ways are beyond our ways. Because we often don't want that in life, right? We want retribution. We want retaliation. We want an eye for an eye. God wants to pay the cost to redeem us. And we're always going to struggle to understand his ways because of that. Because we think in the finite and God thinks in the infinite. Which leaves us with our last question tonight is, friends, where are you? Have you taken advantage of God's mysterious plan? Of the secret that Paul writes about? And the secret and the mystery of God's ways that God wants all of us redeemed? And that God has gone through this elaborate, intricate plan for the sole purpose of bringing you back to Him. That He can walk with you and talk with you. And that you can be one with Him through His beloved Son. And if you don't know that story, that's where it starts. It starts with us learning about Him. The more we learn about Him, the more we'll trust that every promise God has ever made, He's been faithful to. And the fact that He first loved us causes us to love Him. And that love allows us the confidence to turn away from the world, the cares of the world, to embrace Jesus as the way, the truth, and the life, and to die to sin. To say, I don't want to do that anymore. I tried that, it didn't work. And to rise to be selfless, to help those that are hurting. To run to the fire as God would to save those that are burning in it. To be the eyes and the ears and the arms to embrace those that are brokenhearted That all, everywhere, can be saved. And then we learn more, and we trust further, and we love deeper, and we turn further to Jesus, embracing him on an even deeper level, putting to death the sin in our members, becoming more and more selfless. The more times we go around, the closer and closer and closer and closer we're going to get to God. And his ways are mysterious. It's confounding. And if you'll sit and you'll meditate and you'll think on those, you'll be blown away by the fact that God still wants me. The wreck of me that I am, God still wants that. He still loves me. And he still thinks I'm valuable but if you tonight don't feel valuable and don't feel loved let's fix that let's get you plugged in let's get you a part of the kingdom that you can be everything that God wants you to be and if you are a child of God but you've fallen away into the chaos of the world and your life's spinning out of control and you need to feel that love again you need to feel that closeness again and understand exactly who God is Wherever you are, however we can help you, come forward now as we stand and as we sing.